0: I'd like for you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms. Psalm 46, verse 10. We're going to spend our time tonight in this amazing Psalm 46. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Tonight I want to speak from that phrase be still and know that I am God. God bless you. Be seated please. I've chosen this title that's from the psalm to try to lock Psalm 46 Psalm 46 in your head and your heart so that in the future you can refer back to it. Psalm 46 is addressed to the chief musician for or by the sons of Korah. Some modern translations will say uh, that it's to the choir director that this psalm is written. It's fascinating. The sons of Korah were a group of Levitical priests, gatekeepers, and then guardians of the threshold of the tent, later musicians according to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 19. You may remember their infamous father who rebelled against Moses, but the sons of Korah did not die in that judgment and are found generations later serving in the tabernacle and in the temple. The precise history of these Levites is really not known. And then he says that this uh, psalm is to be sung or performed on Alamoth. Now that's a really... Interesting words, and scholars try to understand what it means. It actually may seem, mean uh, instruments that are played in a higher octave, or first tenors, or sopranos. The New Living Translation actually says to be sung by soprano voices. All the sopranos, raise your hands. This should be ladies, in case you're wondering. <laughs> if you don't know. You could be a first tenor, but soprano, just to clarify that. Uh, For the most part, some guys can sing really high and it makes you jealous, right? They're so good. The theme of Psalm 46 is that God's people need to know that he's in control of the natural world and he's in control of the nations of the world. And knowing this, we can be still, we can relax and not be uptight and worried about that. We can be still and know that he is God. Charles Spurgeon in the Treasury of David said, Happen what may, the Lord's people are happy and secure. This is the doctrine of the song. And it might be to help our memories be called the song of holy confidence. That you can be confident in God that no matter what happens in the world or in your life specifically, you can have confidence in Almighty God. Psalm 46 is divided into three parts, stanzas or strophes, and each of them ends with the word selah, S-E-L-A-H. That word that really is a mystery as to what it really means. It might have become somewhat of a musical note, like a, a formata or an indicator to give direction to the choir or the singers or the performers. But we would usually think of seeing selah as pause and think about it. This is a good place. And so Psalm 46 is divided, verses 1 through 3, Selah, verses 4 through 7, Selah, verses 8 through 11, and it ends with Selah or Selah. So I don't usually do this. This is not a very long psalm. I want to read through it, and then I want to make some highlights from this psalm. Psalm 46, in my Bible it has a zero, it's the, it's the introduction to the psalm. Your Bible may have that. Our Bible programs don't have that as much for displaying verses. But that's where it says to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, a song upon Alamah. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the sel- swelling thereof, Selah. So we're going to pause there, a the one. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early at sunrise, some translation says. The heathen raged, the kingdoms removed. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, say That's the end of stanza two, stanza three. Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow. I'm reading the good old King James tonight. He breaketh the bow, cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in fire. Be still because of all of that and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop and think about that for a while. Say So let me give a little insight and exposition. God is our refuge and our strength. When it is all said and done, our strength and our refuge does not lie in anyone or anything but God alone. No one else and nothing else. Not our armies, not our fortress, not our money, not our national history or national security. Israel's boast and our boast, if you could say it like that, is in the Lord, the only living God. Others put their trust, right, in chariots and horses, some scriptures say. But castles and money and Wall Street and government. But none of those in the end are really our refuge. None of those are really our fortress, our safe place. It is God alone. Because there are times when there's a lot of enemies in our lives and we need a refuge like the Lord. A refuge just means a a shelter from danger. I was thinking about shelters from tornadoes and shelters from hurricanes and structures that are designated as storm shelters. You feel like you can go there and it would be a very safe place. This church structurally and hopefully spiritually is also a very safe place. This church is well built. Israel... Had six cities of refuge. They had Kadesh and Shechem. They had Hebron and Golan and Ramoth and Bezer. But in all of those cities of refuge, where a manslayer could run and have a fair opportunity to live, God Himself is really our city of refuge. That strong tower, the Bible talks that we talks about, that we can run into and be saved. God Himself is our refuge. He's also called in the Bible our fortress, Psalm 91 too. And I don't want to pull a lot of other scripture in tonight. But God is a refuge and a fortress, amen. My God, the psalmist said, in Him will I trust. But the Lord is also our strength, the Lord, amen. God is my refuge, my fortress, my strength. And then in verse 1, a very present help in time of trouble. Amen. In this first verse, there are some very strong words. Refuge. Strength. Time of trouble. Easy to understand. But this help in trouble means that God is always ready to help. Now, I had the words of an old song in my notes, and I I took them out. You know that song that said, He's an on-time God? Yes, He is. May not come when you want Him, but He'll be there right on time. I don't know if that song is really aligned to this psalm. But I found in life that he is an on-time God. And that is really what this implies, that he's a, a very present help. That when you need help, he's there. You can shout his name, cry his name. And he is there instantly. He is omnipresent, so he doesn't have to come to where you are. He's already where you are. He's a very present help. In time of trouble. Amen. Now Psalm 46 gives us a view of how we should face troubles in life. And if we know verse 1 that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble, what we're going to get into in this psalm is some trouble. But before you go into trouble, this is your mindset. We are predisposed to believe in God. So when the storm hits, we before the storm have already decided that God is my refuge, my strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And we have that verse because there will be trouble. Not the absence of trouble, but there will be trouble in in our lives. And He's a very present help in a time of trouble. And I say that because it is not good to start trusting in God after the trouble, or in the trouble, that you should go into trouble. Amen? Knowing that He is your refuge, your strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Amen? Because God is all-powerful, omnipotent. Before calamity hits, we already know that He's in charge and that He will prevail. So our trust in God now, before there's trouble, and you may be in a season of trouble now, prepares us for the trouble. When we face those difficulties, we know that God is trustworthy, that He is a refuge, that He is strong, and He's there when we need Him. Verse 2, therefore will will not we fear. Verse 2, and He tells us some circumstances here. And all of these have to do with the natural world, And you could say this is maybe an exaggerated, worst-case scenario. But look at what he says. I know he read through this. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters of the sea roar and be troubled, and the mountains shake with the swelling of the sea. Stop and think about that, Selah, right? Now, I learned in Bible college, and some of you learned before, I said this, but I've said it here through the years. When I was in Bible college, Sister Ruby Martin said, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to see what it is therefore. Why is that word there? It's pointing back to something you know or should know that gives you understanding for what is going to be said next. So because we know that God is our refuge and fortress, a very present help in time of trouble, Therefore, we will not fear when these kind of natural calamities happen. He doesn't list here earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes. He doesn't list things like that. But he points to some very serious things that can happen in your life. But because I know who God is, I can face those things. I go into them knowing that I can trust God. He's my refuge, my strength. Now, this psalm is a real psalm. It doesn't say that there will not be trouble. You don't have to fear because your life's going to be perfect. You don't have to be fearful because your life will be imperfect, but God will be with you. He's in very present help in time of trouble. This psalm is realistic that prepares us for the troubles that we will face in our life. It's there's real powerful poetry here, you know, that he describes the shake in the earth. He doesn't use the word earthquake, but it sounds like that. Mountains are falling into the sea, tidal waves are coming from the ocean, and the mountains that remain are shaking with all the trouble that's going on. This is a huge natural disaster that the psalmist is talking about. And hopefully they wouldn't all happen at the same time, right? But if all these things happen, when the earthquakes and mountains shake and waters rage and mountains heave, when all of that, and it looks like the world is falling apart, the psalmist says we will not fear. Now I think it might be wise to flee. Find a safe place, right? But he's a very present help in time of trouble. In this first stanza of this psalm or strophe, this section. All these forces that are chaotic are in the natural world, the cosmic disorder that can happen. And everything that could go wrong does go wrong in those verses and in all of that, when everything around us in the natural world crumbles and falls, that God is still strong. He's still a refuge. He's still a very present help in time of trouble. And when order turns into disorder, God does not check out. He is a very present help there. He's an unshakable refuge, a safe place that you can run to in the worst circumstances of life. Amen. And this trust is expressed as a personal testimony. We will not fear. Now, you cannot always control your emotions, but you can inform them. And if you inform them, you have a much better chance of controlling them instead of letting your imagination run wild. Another form of exercise for many people. Jumping to conclusions, letting their imaginations run wild. He wants you to know that no matter what happens in the natural world, that God is in control. And then he tells you to stop and think about it. Pause this song, have a little musical interlude. And chew on those words a little while and digest them. Get them in your spirit. Amen. Praise God. It's kind of a break in the action. For what it's worth, Selah is included 71 times in 39 psalms. And in 31 of those psalms, they are directed or addressed to the choir director, the choral leader, that, that person that leads the music in Israel, So that's interesting that it, it seems to be some type of a musical instruction for whoever's leading the choir to give people time to stop and think about it, to pause and ponder that when the world is turned upside down, you can trust God. Stop and think about that, that He will be your refuge, your strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And then look at verse 4. There is a river. Now, we've just heard about seas roaring and mountains falling. But now we've got a river out of nowhere. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy places of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of His people, Jerusalem. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. In verses 2 and 3, we heard a lot about a lot of calamity and trouble and chaos in the earth. But in the middle of all of that, now we have the city of Jerusalem, you know, the place of God's people, the place then of God's presence, that is a place of safety. Now, I'm just apply that to say that I feel like it is important that we make the church, not just this physical building, but this local church a safe place for people. But ultimately it is God who made Israel or Jerusalem a safe place. So you've got the contrast of the raging waters and then you've got this this river flowing there. And what's interesting about this is in Jerusalem there is no river. There was no river. There might have been a stream or two or three that trickled through Jerusalem but no river of any consequence at all. But it's interesting also that in Ezekiel 47 and in Revelation 22 there is a description of a river that would flow out of the temple itself in the city of Jerusalem in a place that God would prepare and be there in a latter time. So the Old Testament prophets kind of see this and the psalmist of Psalm 46 writes about this, a future reality of a river in Jerusalem and this river Of course, it brings life, and it brings gladness. It brings joy to people. So I'm going to apply that right now. that we could all be here in a city called the church, right? Heavenly Jerusalem or Zion. You know, it's compared to Jerusalem. But if there's not a river flowing here of the Spirit of God, if God doesn't do something supernatural and miraculous, we could name this something else other than the church and the people of God. But it is a river flowing. Of the Spirit of God that flows among us that makes this a safe place and a place of joy. This divine protection of God is what is meant here. That God is in the midst of her. He's going to help her at daybreak. He's going to help her right early. Jerusalem does not have to be afraid of all that is going on. Amen. And he tells us in these verses of all the things that are going on in natural life. Uh, That is not really good at all. Amen. Verses 6 and 7. Though earlier we, we were reading about natural calamity. Right. So now we're going to move into political or moral decline. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. Sounds like 2022 doesn't it. And then out of nowhere. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, is with us. God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop and think about that. Now, in verse 6, and you'll see a little more of this, the psalmist is writing not about mountains and earthquakes and seas. He's writing about evil people. So we learned already that God is in control of nature. But now we know that in the middle of a world that is turned upside down, is rebellious against God, a world that is raging with violence and evil and everything that is against God, these kingdoms being moved, that God in a moment of time can utter His voice, the earth melts, and for us, the God that controls the angel armies of the universe is with us, and the God of Jacob, we know Jacob, that patriarch, He's our refuge. He tells us refuge again. The word is common in Psalm 46. These nations are in this incredible uproar. Verse 6. Well, I've already said this in a way. The heathen rage of kingdoms removed. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. I want to go past that. Amen. Stop and think about it. Amen. There's a river. We know that. This place where God is in the midst of that, and no matter what heathen do. Verse 8. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. Now, stop right there. Now, if you just read that one phrase, you might think he wants you to come look at the natural world, the beauty that God created, and he wants you to look at a lunar eclipse and how amazing that was, right? Come behold the works of the Lord. But if you keep reading this verse, you find out what the psalmist is writing about. Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. That God has stepped into this world of evil people where heathen are raging and trying to turn the world upside down and God has made a desolation of them. The picture that verse 8 paints is of a silent, broken battlefield after the horrific clamor of battle that God has annihilated His enemies. And when did this happen? This may be a picture, some scholars say, that this psalm may be, have been written on the occasion of God delivering Israel out of the hands of the Assyrians. We do not know that for sure, but let me just give this as a case study of what God can do. This is found uh, in 2 Kings chapter 18. So what if this psalm was written about this? It could have been. Hezekiah is king, and the Assyrians come against him, and they come against all the fenced cities of Judah, and they capture them. Now this is a longer story in the Bible. It starts in 2 Kings 18.13 and goes through chapter 19, verse 36. So I'm going to summarize to get the salient points from it. The Assyrians, they come and and they launch an assault against Jerusalem. And then they start intimidating them. Who is Hezekiah? Why are you trusting him? No other nation has been able to stand before us. Who are their gods? Your God's are no different than them. We're on a mission from God, and they, and they do everything they can to get the people of, of Jerusalem to turn against Hezekiah and abandon him, the king, and hurl all of these incense in, in, uh, assault, insults against him. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all their land out of the king of Assyria? We want you to know, little teeny nation over here, you're nothing to us. Well, Hezekiah prays, He needs God. In 2 Kings 19.32, the Lord makes a statement. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by that same way shall he return. This is a good prayer to pray right now. Uh, for some countries, against some countries. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses All dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now, I don't know for sure that this story was the setting that inspired Psalm 46, but perhaps it was something like this or this. And when the psalmist says, Come behold the works of the Lord, walk out over here into the camp of the Assyrians and know that you didn't stand a chance that they were going to destroy you, and you cannot do anything against them. But in a single night, I have taken them out. They've not shot an arrow in your city. They've not set foot in your city. I, the Lord, your come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's made desolation of your enemies. That's what this psalm wants you to know, that God is our refuge. Amen? He's our strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. And it doesn't matter if it's the natural world where there's chaos or the world of kingdoms and countries and economies, that God is in charge of them as well. And in a moment of time, God can turn it all around. There can be a great reverse. God can do that. I put in my notes, Exodus fifteen three. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 8 is an invitation to come check out the aftermath of the wrath of God on his enemies. Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he's made in the earth. If you're fighting fear, he's saying, why don't you come see what God can do? Come find out what the Lord has done and see if that doesn't bolster your faith in God. As I said all Sunday, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. That's why we do not fear, because God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Verse 9. He maketh wars to cease. Start that over. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. Now, how does he do that? let pause right there. I know you have the rest of the verse there. He makes wars to cease. Does God just say, okay, stop, no more war? He can do that, but he doesn't. that's not what this verse says. How does God end war? He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariot. The Lord is a fighter. He's a man of war. You can try to imagine him however you want to imagine him, But what you really need to do is see what kind of a God he is in this book. That he loves his people. He fights for them. He is our refuge, our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And he steps onto the battlefield and he's a fighter. He fights for us. Amen. I know he's the prince of peace. But sometimes he brings peace by destroying our enemies. When you read the Bible, you read that peace comes at a price, that it isn't just all of a sudden it appears out of thin air that it comes because there is a war. The Lord makes wars to cease by winning them, just as He will at the Battle of Armageddon, breaking the bows of His enemies, shattering their spears, destroying their chariots. Whatever weapon that is formed against us he makes sure it doesn't prosper. Amen. But here's what we've learned about God. He's our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He rules in the natural world. And he also is in control of the political or the moral world of men. And in these three stanzas of Psalm 46, he wants us to see that nothing in the natural world can take you out. And nothing in the human world of politics and governments and immorality can take you out. And that the Lord in the middle of all of this trouble can give you a provision of water to the people in his city. He can make a river where there's not a river. And he's in the midst of our people to help us. And we just learned that he ends wars by winning them. And when you know all of that about God, then you can get to verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Now that makes a whole lot more sense now that I kind of studied those first nine verses. And some commentators say that be still and know that I am God is kind of a military shout like stop, desist, see who I am. It's spoken to the outside. And others say it's spoken to God's people. And other commentators say it's to everyone, the good and the bad. The bad people stop and see what he just did to your army. The good people stop and see what he did to their army. Be still and know that I am God. And look at, he he does this in reverse. I will be exalted among the heathen, that's the bad people. And I will be exalted in the earth, that's the natural world. He reviews back through the psalm to remind us That we can be still and know that he is in charge of everything. Whether it is human or natural. Be still and know that I am God. You know, I read multiple, multiple, multiple commentaries. I want to really know what be still means. And it probably just means relax. Just chill out. Now, I always know, I have this predisposition when I read the Bible, that when the Bible says something, it's because I need it. That's why it's there, because we need that. And we need to be still and know that He is God. He's just told that that in the middle of all the tumult in the natural world, that he has a sanctuary, a city called Jerusalem. And he can put a river there that brings gladness and health oh, to the yeah. city. He's already just told us that no matter what happens in the political world, all the armies that are coming against you, and if it was written about Assyrians, and Sennacherib and Ramshacket that, that just insults them, that God can in a single night take them out and sort of, you know, just pack up and say, you know... I don't think we're going to attack Jerusalem after all. I've just had a little change of mind here. Be still. And know. I don't feel. You don't have to feel anything about that. Be still and know. He said. That I am God. I rule everything. I've already predetermined the outcome. So be still. Relax. Stop. <laughs> and realize who He is. That He is on our side. Because only when you stop and stop your struggle to try to solve your problems your way without God will you see God work. Amen? He'll be exalted among the heathen. He'll be exalted in the earth. I've already said this, but this is where it is in my notes. And summarizes the two dimensions of the power that God has overcome in the natural world and the political world of two stanzas previous. He rules the men and he rules the natural world. And ultimately he'll prevail so you can stop and and be still and know. Now remember in the first verse... We learn that he's our, our refuge, our strength, and ever-present help in time of trouble. And we will not fear, even though the world gets turned upside down. So this, this psalm, I told you, it's a, it's a realistic psalm about life. And I was reminded of Hebrews 11. And the, the turning point of Hebrews 11, the heroes of faith. There are some people that saw victory from trouble and some saw victory through trouble. Some were delivered from death and some were put to death. So if we think that because God is in control that our life is going to be heaven on earth, then that's not realistic. And I spent a whole month teaching on this about messages to the dispersed church. But when you read Hebrews 11, I'm starting in 32, I'm just kind of perusing this. What more should I say? Time would fail me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets. Through faith, they subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lying, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, Were out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Stop right there. I should have put this on the screen, but... And then it says, in others. And someone preached years ago the other side of faith. Because on this first side, that's where I want to be. I want to be raised from the dead. I want everything to go really good. And, and there are men and women in your Bible who saw everything turn around and and life went well for them. They're not heroes of faith because it went well for them. They're heroes of faith because they had faith. Okay? But in the middle of verse 35, it says, And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds, imprisonments. They were stoned. They were cut in half, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented. Is that where you want to be in Hebrews 11? I mean, I'm going to take the other side of that colon in that verse, right? I want to be... But the Bible is an honest book. The Bible says of them, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that phrase. The world was not worthy of people of that character, of that kind of faith. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, everybody already listed, who saw miraculous intervention, and those who did not, all of them having obtained a good report through faith, obtained not the promise, the promise of the Holy Ghost that would come in the New Testament. But they obtained a good report. Not because their disease was healed, but because they believed in God no matter what happened. So our faith is not measured by the miracle. Our faith is measured that no matter what happens, we do not turn our back on God. And we recognize that in a moment of time, though the natural calamities or political upheaval, that God, in a single instant of time... Remember when Jesus said, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Is that 186,000 miles per second? Like speed of light, whatever. I saw Satan. So how, how long did that battle last when God said to the devil, you're out of here? It wasn't a 15-round boxing match with a technical knockout. They didn't fight to a draw. How much authority does the devil have and how much authority does God have? He's a prince in power of the air. God has delegated to him some authority. But God's power and authority is infinite. It cannot be measured. So whatever, whatever Satan brought to the battle that day, from God's perspective, when he said, you're gone, it was just like that. The Bible said in Revelation, they will narrowly look on him and say, is this the one that troubled the nations? Is this the guy that's caused all this trouble for all these years? I'm saying that to let you know that God in his time has all power in heaven and earth. There is nothing that can stop him, not even for a second. Amen. Amen. So be still, be still and know that he is God. Hallelujah. And he will be exalted among the heathen. He will be exalted in the earth. Amen. Well, you can stand because I'm going to wrap up. Verse 11. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop and think about that. Verse 11 is an exact repeat of verse 7. In Verses 1, 7, and 11, the psalmist uses the word refuge. This is a refuge song. This is a song of confidence in God. That no matter what you go through in your life, that you can run to God. He gave us a refuge because we would need one. And whatever you go through in your life, if you could just kind of lock this in your mind, when you start to get frantic or panicky or spazzing out or however you express that, be still. I don't understand it. Does it make a bit of sense to me? I'm going to be still, God. I'm going to pause. I'm going to bring my emotions in check. I'm going to bring my imagination in check. I'm going to be still and know that you are God. Stop fretting because whatever you're facing, God's got this. If you'd like to come, just thank the Lord for his mercy. Come to the altar. I thank you, Lord God, that your governance covers everything, everywhere. Hallelujah. I give you praise, Lord God. If you'll just come stand, I want to just tell you a little quick story. In 1974, a tornado ripped through the town of Xenia, Ohio. I know this story. I tried to find the details of this again. I cannot find it anywhere. In the aftermath of that, a man who lived in Xenia, Ohio, wrote a song that is called Peace in the Midst of the Storm. Anybody know that song? Thanks for all the older people. The verse goes like this. When the world that I've been living in collapses at my feet, when my life is shattered and torn, though I'm windswept and battered, I'll still cling to His cross and find peace in the midst of the storm. There is peace in the midst of the storm-tossed life. There's an anchor. There's a rock to cast my on. Jesus rides in my vessel, so I'll fear no alarm. He gives me peace in the midst of the storm. If you're interested in finding that song, you can Google the song, Brooklyn Tabernacle, Shirley, Caesar, and others. I'm more interested in knowing that in the midst of the storm, I can be still and know that He is God. Let's thank Him for that assurance right now.